Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 272, would you believe, the Spanish marriage. Before I start, the History of England and indeed the Agora Podcast Network has a new sponsor. Yes! The sponsor is called Flick, who make a fab app for Apple or Google Play, which allows chat and debate on whatever topics you and I and all of us want to talk about. Flick is easy and fun, I know, because I've tried it, and we can have a full and frank exchange of views as we go along. So, there you are, sitting around a boring old commute. Well, why not instead argue about whether Mary did the right thing to marry Philip, or who your favourite historical figure is, or what would have happened if Mary had topped Elizabeth in 1554? To show you just how fun it is, at the end of the show, why not come and debate whether Mary was right or wrong to marry Philip of Spain? All you have to do is copy the link in the show notes, or go to the website, The History of England, where you will see a link. Download the Appadoodle and we'll be away. And meanwhile, don't forget the Intelligence Speech Conference. Again, details on the History of England website. Be there or be square, as they say. Or said, once upon a time. My parents' generation, really. But, you know, hey. So then, while Mary was dealing with the vexatious business of her unreliable and indeed slippery sister, there was much more hopeful news in her life. The approaching prospect of a marriage. Wyatt's rebellion had made this no easier to achieve. Firstly, at the Guildhall, Mary had made a significant concession. She had promised that Parliament would be required to ratify her marriage, although there were other reasons we'll come to as to why Mary thought that would be a good idea anyway. Secondly, the idea that England was about to suffer a Spanish takeover had not died with Wyatt, anything but, in fact. 
The rebellion had instead given voice to and inflamed all the worries about what would happen next. There was some attempt to equate these feelings with Protestantism, you know, lump all the naughtiness onto the one step. But in fact, the concerns were as much with Mary's Catholic supporters as with anyone. This wasn't a matter of factionalism necessarily. It's more a matter of being in a situation that nobody had been in before, which went against the established order of things. So, Ritz went out to bring the great, the good, and the sometimes slightly grubby to Parliament to debate all these matters. As it happens, before everyone arrived, Mary went ahead with a formal betrothal on the 6th of March 1554, which makes it quite clear that Mary was taking the Tudor view as regards Parliament, that they were there to do what they were told. However, it was just a betrothal, an overture to the main event, carried out with Philip's representative, the Count of Egmont. As such, it could be described as the Egmont Overture. That is a most amusing, if slightly pretentious, joke. Thank you. I am here all week. As we have heard, when he heard the terms of the marriage treaty to the person he wrote to as Dear Auntie, Philip was less than enthusiastic about the kipper into which his father had stitched him and had secretly absolved himself from all its terms by oath. Over the next few months, he was to prove really rather difficult in a sort of passive resistance, teenage surliness kind of way, simply failing to communicate his movements and when he might tip up England's side. For the time being, of course, this was not actually a problem, since Mary had to hoover the red carpet of English law before her husband could parade along it. The issue was with those lawyers who we heard muttering that, really, it's all very well, this marriage treaty thing, but there's a legal custom to bear in mind here. And also, we need to resolve bigger questions about what exactly a queen is. There's a sort of Venn diagram thing going on here, with one little squish to circle about what the rights and status of a queen regnant actually are, since, you know, we've never had one before. Then another squished circle about the marriage and the rights of Philip and whether he'd abide by those rules once he'd arrived. And actually, there was another squashed circle with the religious settlement written in it, because there was much that was yet to be resolved with the religious settlement, and the empire was standing in the way of that too. So, in the circle that held all these together was written Philip and the royal marriage, and that needed to be fixed to fix the rest. But let's take Maria's advice from The Sound of Music and start at the very beginning, since apparently that's a very good place to start. But then, if, as Stephen Hawking taught us, there is no beginning and no end, then how does that help anyway? What is a queen regnant? Let's start with that one, shall we? Was the queen a king, just with, you know, different bits and stuff? Or could we start with a blank piece of vellum, since, you know, we'd never had one before, as I may have mentioned? Now, a memoir written 25 years later relates a rather fun bit of conspiracy that was proposed to Mary to take advantage of this novel situation. The proposal to the Queen was this, that she take upon the title of the Conqueror. Interesting. I don't think the paper was suggesting that Mary call herself Mary the Bastard. I think it was being proposed that since there was no precedent, she could, in theory, return to the days of the rights of William the Conqueror, who, as you will remember, had conquered England and held every jolly old square inch of the place by right of conquest. Now, since the days of good old Billy the Conk, many very vexatious and inconvenient things had happened, 
Magna Carta for one. Then there'd been all that Simon de Montfort stuff, which made Parliament appear and get all uppity. And then there'd been that awful little tick, Peter de la Mare, with talk of speaking for the House, belling the cat, and all that good Parliament horror, which thankfully good old Gaunt had managed to crush. And then we'd handed Parliament the gift of primacy of statute over royal proclamation. And I mean many things. But put it all together, and why? The monarch was hardly a monarch at all anymore. No more than a pussycat with a tinkly bell. Which wasn't just about insulting the Queen and making her upset. It was to make the point, and it was so difficult to get anything done around here with all these limitations on her power. And if she claimed that she was a new thing, a Queen regnant, which reset the dial to zero, then it would help her get things done. She might, the paper went on, at her pleasure, reform the monasteries, advance her friends, suppress her enemies, establish religion, and do what she like. Well, it must have been tempting, must it not? I believe, to be fair, we have only one account this happened, so many historians discount it, but if it is true, it is the Mary Queen, the praise be given, because she tore up that paper, gentle listener, and she threw it on the fire. In common with her dynasty, Mary would be at times a capricious, violent, brutal ruler. But what the heck, in common with her dynasty, she would be a parliamentary capricious, violent and brutal ruler. After burning the prospect of absolute power in the fire, Mary turned to her Chancellor Stephen Gardiner and it was he that drafted an act to make it crystal clear what a queen was, which was to be a king with, you know, different bits, although Gardiner put it more elegantly. Be it declared that the law of this realm is and ever hath been and ought to be understood that the king or regal office of the realm being invested in either male or female are and be and ought to be as fully, absolutely and entirely deemed judged, accepted, invested and taken in the one as in the other. Not really sure what that means, but what it essentially means is a queen was a king, you know, with different bits. It's a big moment. I mean, it sounds simple and obvious now and maybe it was, but... With this, Mary once again laid down the template that all her successors would follow. So, that's one swished Venn diagram circular thing dealt with. The next one was about Philip. Would he abide by the treaty once he'd got his royal knees under the table of state, his pretty white feet into the furry slippers of kingliness? He was a king, after all, and they had dangerous things. They lash out like lions and small children. They're dangerous. And the lawyers had warned that by English law... Once Philip becomes king, she loses the title to the crown and his highness becomes king. Let's hear it for lawyers. They make sure we don't sweep that difficult stuff under the carpet. So, the answer was that the marriage treaty was made into statute law. Marriage treaty, now statute law. Now this once again seems simple, but it was unprecedented. So now if Philip wanted to become king and start handing out offices, make decisions, go to war or, God forbid, take possession of the remote control of the telly, he would have to go to Parliament to get that law repealed. So, protection in place. We have dealt with the second squished circle. What is that squished circle you use Venn diagrams called, by the way? The third was rather more complicated and we had paid reference to it already. The Queen's first Parliament had swept out a lot of the old parliamentary debris of Protestantism with the broom of righteousness. But you know what the winds of change are like. They will blow things around. So there's still a lot of old leaves lying around, like mm, the royal supremacy, for example. Mary no longer called herself 
supreme head of the church, but legally she was still supreme head of the church. And that was not papally pleasing, but papally pooey. Not only that, but Edward's repeal of the old heresy acts, that was still in place. And they were needed back, please, because without good old laws such as de heretico comberendo, well, it was impossible to comberendo heretics. Burn them, that is. You couldn't burn them, and we want to burn them. Now, once again, there was a little imperial flag in the diagram. The answer to this in Mary's mind was her papal legate, and hopefully new Archbishop of Canterbury one day, Reginald Poole. Poole it was that could help her restore the papal supremacy, the old legal heresy framework, and legally get rid of the heretical Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, because he was the papal legate. He could speak for the Pope. But Reginald Poole couldn't get over to England, keen though he was to start the good work, because Charles V, the Emperor, he was working behind the scenes to make sure that he did not get over. Well, why on earth would he do that? After all, Charles and Philip are the pitchforks of the Catholic Reformation. The answer was that Charles wanted Philip to be the one who got all the credit for making this stuff happen, so he wanted no more progress until Philip was firmly in England and seated next to his Queen. So Renard, the ambassador, was busily working away trying to slow everything down while Charles held up Reginald Pole and they tried to get Philip over to England. Now this wasn't good enough for Stephen Gardiner. Gardiner was not a man to be foiled by anyone. And so despite Renard's opposition, he drafted a bill to go before Parliament restoring the papal supremacy and the heresy laws anyway. Now Gardiner had no right to negotiate on behalf of the papacy, so this must have been a unilateral submission, essentially, which in itself is a little anti-papal supremacy sort of thing. I say Gardiner was responsible for this, but while he might have been the initiating force, it was quite clearly done with Mary's knowledge and support to boot. Mary, in common with her predecessors, did not normally attend the royal council meetings, but she would most certainly discuss any proposed bill before it went to Parliament and it would not go forward from council without her explicit consent and advice. So as far as Mary was concerned, although she was a stickler for doing the right things right, this was all fine by her. There was a problem, though. As I said, Gardner had no power to negotiate on behalf of the papacy, and this meant he could have nothing to say about church lands. So all those lovely monastic lands, they would all be in line for the Pope to demand them back, please, after giving every purchaser a thorough telling off for the state of sin into which they had placed themselves by buying them in the first place. This, after all, was Reginald Poole's stated position too. Just give them back, you're all being sinful. The issue caused a split and warfare on the council and in the corridors of power. We're in the weird position of the Catholic imperial ambassador opposing Gardner from reinstating the papal supremacy, which is odd. Meanwhile, William Paget was much clearer that without a settlement about church lands at the same time, this bill would be a disaster and cause massive political instability and opposition from the people that really mattered politically. And so, in the background, he worked furiously like a hamster on a little wheel to frustrate the bill from its passage through Parliament. Which might make you think that Renard and William Paget would be all matey-matey, but oh no, not a bit of it. Renard was livid with Paget because he'd decided that Paget was a red-clawed heretic and was opposing the bill for the wrong reasons. And so we have a three-parted political throat-tearing thing going on. Through the Commons went Gardner's bill, though. 
through the first reading in the Lords and the second. A good Lord, he's going to make it. I think he's going to make it, but stop right there. The bill was rejected on its third and final reading on the 1st of May 1554 and Paget could breathe a huge sigh of relief and start knitting his arse cover. Which he needed. Mary knew fine well who had whipped up the opposition and made the consequences of this bill clear to the Lords and his name began with a P and ended with a T and by the 13th of May Renard was able to write in his report that it looked as though Paget, Arundel and Pembroke were all going to be arrested and largely because Renard himself was in the Queen's ears. At one stage Renard persuaded the Queen to open the mail of her own ambassador in Brussels to see if he was plotting with Paget as well. Can I just make a point that was made by some of the Queen's councillors at this point. Why, in the name of all that is holy, do we have an ambassador of a foreign power so deeply in cahoots with the crowned head of England? Either way, Parliament was dismissed, Paget was rusticated, and for a while he is very much out of favour. Gardner may have failed to get what he and his Queen wanted, but he was without doubt her right hand. So, now all attention could turn back to a happier event, the mariage. It was slightly stressful in England, because although everything was now set, the groom had gone horribly quiet. Was he on his way, or was he not on his way? Actually, in Spain, Philip was far from keen, as we have said, neither with his bride nor with the deal, as we have also said, so why am I repeating it? But he was a well-brought-up young man of 28, and he was prepared to do his dynastic duty. But... The Habsburgs and the Valois were at war, I know, again, and things were going badly in the Netherlands at the hands of the French for the Habsburgs. So Philip was gathering an army to bring with him to go on to the Netherlands while he stopped and got married in England. And a big army needed a big fleet. So, you know, busy, busy. Preparations were all going ahead in England, orders of bunting all in hand, and an English household was prepared with 350 members for Philip, led by the Earl of Arundel. There were two aims with this one, by the way. Of course, a king needed his grand household, so, you know, tick. But also, if he had an English household rather than a Spanish one, there'd be fewer Spanish noblemen about. Equals, less friction, QED and a stitch in time saves nine, and all that. So, April turned into May, May into June, and June back again into January, until all of a sudden February turned into July, and the news arrived from La Coronia that Philip was definitely on his way. On the 19th of July, Philip arrived at the docks at Southampton. It was weighing it down. Welcome. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. But never mind. What the weather may have lacked in joy is reception more than made up for. The Earl of Arundel and a swarm of notables were there to welcome him. Hooray! The Earl had the Order of the Garter with him, and there was a magnificent barge to row him ashore. And there was a special surprise too. Dad, Charles V, that is, had sent a messenger, and he handed over the titles to the kingdoms of Naples, Sicily 
and Jerusalem to Philip. Wow, thanks, Dad. The next day, Philip gave them all a nice talk about his coming into the kingdom. This no doubt owed a lot to Renard, who had sent detailed instructions about how he should behave, making it quite clear that he was a king, not a ruler, very high on that list. Basically, it all went very well, and Philip rather impressed everyone. Philip doesn't seem to have been a big man and was quite slight, and yet the Scotsman John Elder described him as well-favoured and with a manly countenance. And I don't think that was code for he'd been on the pies, followed as it was by the comment, Nature cannot work a more perfect pattern. Which is a pretty compliment, right enough. See if you can work that one into a conversation. An English eyewitness was obviously impressed with his gear, seated on a fair white horse in a rich coat embroidered with gold, with a white feather in his hat. Very fair. Philip was superbly educated and managed himself with equal skill, as we shall see. There was one rather critical problem, that Philip had brought his own household with him. Whoops! This was distinctly awkward. There was friction, muttering, dark glances. Which would get worse, by the way. But never mind. For the moment, all was expectation, and off to Winchester went Philip by the 23rd of July, the place where he would meet his queen. Mary, meanwhile, had been waiting north of London, and as soon as she'd heard Philip had landed, she haired down to Winchester and set up shop at the Bishop's Palace. On the 24th, the day before they would get married, about three in the afternoon, Philip set out from the Dean's house in Winchester, followed at a discreet distance by a cloud of Spanish and English gentlemen, all in his Sunday best, and walked round to his fiancée's house. When he entered the court, the music struck up and in the hall Mary was standing on what is described as a scaffold, which can't be right. I have a mental image of winches and things, as there's no dignity or indeed sex in a winch. Anyway, it all passed off very merrily indeed. Everyone thought the pair treated each other with great care, kindness and affection. Philip spoke no English, but Mary probably spoke some Spanish, so the best guess is that they spoke a bit of Latin, French and Spanish. The fact that the well-educated of Europe could be expected to speak Spanish, Italian and French, but not English, tells you something, I think. The following day was the wedding, and thoroughly grand it was, performed by Wiley Winchester, Stephen Gardner, of course, and there was much rejoicing, and everyone seemed pleased. There was symbolism, and there was awkwardness all around, of course. So, all the way through the ceremony, Mary kept on the right-hand side, which is the traditional side where the man stood, the point being made about where real power was here. There was outraged rustling in the Spanish Quarter at this. However, the formal style in writing for the pair was Philip and Mary, by grace of God, King and Queen of England, which led to furrowed English brows. They had wanted the Queen's name first. But Philip's foot had been firmly planted down on this one, insisting that Nola, divine or human, nor his majesty's prestige and good name would allow him to be named second, especially as the treaties and acts of Parliament gave him the title of King of England. There was the ubiquitous chip, the ubiquitous feast, and the blessing of the bed, and then everyone crept away, leaving the pair to their wedding night, and the thing was done. England had a king, the queen had a husband, the dog had a bone, the farmer had a wife. Now, I have wondered about, in my opinion, about this marriage. Mary has had a lot of stick, that this was a fundamental decision which would cause enormous grief and damage to her reign. 
and she's very frequently characterised as a sort of lovelorn teenager who handed over her kingdom to her heart's desire sort of thing. Let us put hindsight to one side for a moment and consider the case. Mary knew full well that the Spanish were deeply unpopular with the English. She knew full well that everyone was in a right old funk about the danger of being ruled by a foreign king. We know that she did not walk into this eyed wide shut because we can see the evidence of the treaty, which was pretty brutal. So, lovelorn teenager, thoughtless, really don't apply. But what were the choices? Marriage to an English nobleman would have had many of the same problems of role. Think of the pain and agony of domestic marriages of, say, Edward IV, and the explosion of pain it caused in the patronage market, accusations of favouritism and all that sort of thing. And then look at the prize from Mary's point of view. Her priorities were to establish her dynasty, bring her country back to what she fervently considered the true faith. What better marriage than this? which brought her people into the community of the Catholic Church and into alliance with the most powerful family in Europe. It is at least a decision that can be defended. The rubric is that Mary was well pleased and maybe genuinely smitten with her husband. She herself wrote, This marriage and alliance which renders me happier than I can say, as I daily discover in the king, my husband and your son, so many virtues and perfections that I constantly pray God to grant me grace to please him and behave in all things as befits one who is so deeply emboldened to him. The clue here is probably that she's writing to Philip's dad, so what else was she going to say? But others looking on either saw a Mary who had at least partly fallen for her man, either that or who was a great loss to the acting profession. And there were other observers who saw the same thing. The Queen is very happy with the King, and the King with her, and he strives to give her every possible proof of it in order to omit no part of his duty. He makes her so happy that the other day when they were alone, she almost talked love talk to him, and he replied in the same vein. He shrewdly added in another letter, His Highness is so tactful and attentive to her that I am sure they will be very happy. So the other side of this then is Philip, and as this quote shows, Philip was no brute. He was clearly careful, attentive and kind. But the consensus was his heart just was not in it. He didn't let much slip, but a servant reported that he'd marked that Mary was a lot older than he'd thought, and rather ungallantly was reported as saying that Mary is no good from the point of view of fleshly sensuality. Later, when Reginald Pole arrived, he would note that Philip is the spouse of Mary, but treats her so deferentially as to appear her son. You get the idea. Nonetheless, the marriage bed was duly warmed and everyone prayed for his son. Mary stayed indoors for a few days, as was traditional, while Philip went for a look around Winchester. And if I know anything about Winchester, he'd have had a lovely time. Renard was very happy with the way everything was going and delighted with the behaviour of his prince. He should have been less happy. Philip did not trust or rate Renard, and his arrival removed Mary's need for Renard's counsel and advice. Why should she, when she had the real thing now in Philip? Renard's time in the sun was over. Before long, he'd be complaining bitterly and trying to leave England and get himself home. After ten days' honeymoon, it was off to London, which the pair entered on the 8th of August, over London Bridge and up Gracechurch Street through the obligatory stream of pageants. 
It is worth noting that there was a lot of Spanishness going on in the pageants, as you'd expect, but, as you might also expect, the displays emphasised Englishness, seizing on the rather distant relationship between Philip and John of Gaunt. The crowds cheered, presentations were made, Philip did his duty and the whole affair went off very well again. Philip himself wrote to his sister, We have visited London, where I was received with universal signs of love and joy. So, all good then. No one was fooled. We might spend a bit of time then on mutual xenophobia, cultural conflict, tribalism, whatever you might want to call it. Because here were two very self-important groups of noblemen meeting, full of pride on the one hand and worry on the other. The English, that their influence was just about to be ripped away by the nobility of the most powerful kingdom on earth. And the Spaniards, that they were alone in a sea of very obviously hostile English. Added to that, there was a major language barrier, so communication was something of a problem. Meanwhile, around the streets of London, the rumour ran like wildfire. A great Spanish army is about to invade England. Spanish friars are going to take over the complete running of the church. England is getting absorbed into a great supranational organisation and we're going to lose our independence and identity. They, the English, loudly proclaim they're going to be enslaved for the Queen is a Spanish woman at heart and thinks nothing of Englishmen but only of Spaniards and bishops. Into this lot then came the Spaniards all at once, a lot of them, walking the streets of London and inhabiting the halls of the court. They were all over the place like a rash. There were so many Spaniards in London that a man should have met in the streets for one Englishman above four Spaniards. So part of this was a genuine problem. A cloud of hangers-on came with the Spanish court as well. It wasn't just the noblemen. Many of those hangers-on then set up booths and shops in the streets, which in the highly regulated medieval world of guilds was a red rag to the London bull. And where there was opportunity, the interlopers were not gently treated. The English are so bad and fear God so little that they handle the friars shamefully. And the poor men do not dare to leave their quarters. The crowd tried to tear the cloaks off the backs of Don Pedro and Don Antonio, his nephew, asking what they mean by wearing crosses and jeering at them. Right, I can't do the accent anymore, OK? There's loads of it following, so you'll just have to guess. The local English grandees knew exactly what to expect from their people. All the pageants were taken hurriedly down within two days of the entrance into London, taken down before they were vandalised. In court, it was all rather similar, though presumably under as much of a veneer of politeness as possible. It wasn't a help by the fact there were two households now for Philip. Philip took a rather weary, practical approach to the problem. OK, he said, the English can have me on public occasions during the day, the Spanish can have me in private situations in my chambers. Despite the fact that it was Philip himself who had caused this problem in the first place by bringing his household, it was as practical and sensible an answer as you could think of, and everyone duly hated it with a passion. The Spanish complained of being invisible in the public apartments, the English of having no intimacy with the man they were supposed to serve. And meanwhile, all the competitiveness of the English came to the fore. One courtier wrote about the king and his Spanish gentleman dancing, and he bragged, They did see my Lord Bray, Mr Carew and others so far exceed them. English people exceed them in dancing? I don't think so. 
On another occasion, the king and his courtiers carried out a cane play, a joust where canes replaced lances, all done in spectacular colours and movements. A Spanish count gloomily reported that it left the spectators cold and the English made fun of it. In return, the Spanish were insufferably superior and patronising to the English barbarians. Mary herself got a mixed press. Her commitment to the Catholic cause won her admiration from the Spaniards, but they were disdainful of the level of her authority. The king and queen have no more authority in this land than if they were vassals. And at best, they damned with faint praise. A perfect saint who dresses badly is a good example, and Mary's dress sense received general mockery, it has to be said, along with all the English women folk, as it happens. The comment of Philip's most trusted attendant, Rie Gometh de Silva, gets the rather condescending tone rather nicely. To speak frankly with you, it will take a great god to drink this cup, but the king realises the marriage was concluded for no fleshly considerations, but in order to remedy the disorders of this kingdom and preserve the low countries. Meanwhile, generally London actually got quite a good press for a city, but actually, in combination with the weather, all the streets are so badly paved that they get wet at the slightest quantity of water, and this happens very frequently on account of the rain, of which there is a great deal in this island. And then a vast and evil-smelling mud is formed, which lasts nearly the whole year round. Now, we know, as it happens, that the English of the time get quite a good press from other nations for their physique. Here's an Italian visitor. The English are both men and women of all ages, handsome and well-proportioned. So far, so good. I have understood from persons acquainted with those countries that the Scotch are much handsomer from blind persons acquainted with those countries, clearly then. Sadly, however, not all countries were so complimentary. The French ambassador described England as this nasty island, at which point someone should have explained that England isn't itself an island and kicked him in the shins. But let's be clear, the English were not considered the height of European culture. As far as the Spaniards were concerned, the language was uncouth and the English were essentially barbarians. The women of the court also came in for a bit of a beating. Not a single Spanish gentleman has fallen in love with one of them, nor takes any interest in them, and their feelings for us are the same. They complained that the English ladies are of evil conversation, though at least some of their insults reached backhanded compliment level, since apparently English women were too forward for their liking. For who, in any other land, ever saw a woman riding forth as they do here? where many of them manage their horses with consummate skill and are as firm in the saddle as any man. Elsewhere, and I think this is my favourite actually, elsewhere the Spanish describe their hosts as white, pink and quarrelsome, which is fair enough actually. They've probably been to the game or, I don't know, the beach. English habits also filled them with horror. There is plenty of beer here and they drink more than would fill the Valladolid River. And the ladies and some gentlemen put sugar in their wine, with the result there are great goings-on in the palace. Charles V had himself warned his son against allowing any of the Spanish courtiers to take their wives with them. But the Duke of Alba, of course, ignored the advice, and no doubt wished he hadn't. The Duchess complained bitterly about the accommodation she was offered, and 
the Duchess of Alba has been once to the palace, and I do not believe she will go again. In summary, then, the English hate us Spaniards worse than they hate the devil, and treat us accordingly. And we would rather be in Spain than see England or the sea, and we're all desiring to be off with such longing we think of Flanders as paradise. So, love, peace, harmony, it ain't then. Would it all be worth it, was the question. Would Philip and Mary found a dynasty, bring England back to Rome and together defeat the French for the greater glory of the empire? Find out here on the History of England. Next episode in two weeks' time, sorry, until we get to the mid-end of June-ish and I stop my three-day-a-week job, I'm still on short rations. Do not forget Flick Chat. Come along for a chat doodle and if you haven't booked the Intelligence Speech Conference either, then you may miss the opportunity of a lifetime Possibly an exaggeration, but you know, it'll be fun. Meanwhile, have a genuinely fabulous time. Thank you so much for listening, for joining in and reviewing. It's lovely to hear from all or any of you. It is, in the end, that which makes it all worthwhile. So, have a lovely fortnight and see you on Flick Chat. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 